morning, Lakeview. You made it through January 2022. Well done. It's February, and that means that we get, yeah, well done, you guys. That also means that we get to start a new series, Retell, where we're going to be spending the next approximately three months in stories that are unique to the Gospel of Luke. Um, so Luke is one of the four Gospels, which all tell the same story, the story of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But they're all told from different points of view to different audiences for different purposes. Now, the Gospels all share the same story, but they tell it from different perspectives, and it's a little bit like this. So, first picture, you see a cat. Flip it over, you see a mouse. Different perspective, different viewpoint. First one, you see a cat. The second one, you see a dog. Same picture, different viewpoint. First one, you see like an old man in a Scottish town. I think that's what he is. I actually have a hard time seeing the second one. I just see the Scottish town guy upside down. But the second one is a dog with a bone. Do you see that? The perspective we have changes what we see. It's not that there's not a mouse in the first picture um, when we see the cat, but we are able to see the mouse when the picture gets turned over, when the perspective shifts. And it's the same with the Gospels. Each writer speaks about the same person. He show the same picture, Jesus. They see that same person, but their perspective reveals different things about who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, what his words and his actions meant. The stories they tell are coherent. They fit with one another. They tell one story, but they reveal different aspects of that story. And in telling the story the way that each of the writers does, they are doing interpretation. They're choosing which stories to include and which not, which themes to emphasize, and which stories to tell. And this is part of the brilliance of having four accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, we're given the gift of understanding that Jesus is not just this flat character, but he is a real life, multifaceted human being, and that the message and the person of Jesus has the capacity to meet different communities and people where they're at, including ours. Jesus' story is not fossilized in an autobiography, but alive in a narrative. And so we're focusing for the next three months on the Gospel of Luke, and specifically the unique stories that we find in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke is the only gospel to tell us the parable of the Good Samaritan, or the story of the prodigal son. Luke gives special attention to those who are considered outsiders, especially to those on the outside because of their religious affiliation, or their gender, or their bad choices, their nationality, their health status. It is the only book to give us the story of Zacchaeus. It's the only book to include um, the special relationship that Jesus has with women and considers those women disciples. It's the only book to give us the beautiful story of the disciples on their way to Emmaus. Luke explores themes of who is in and who is out 
in the new community that Jesus is forming, and it's unexpected who's in and who's out. He gives this broad view of salvation, how it includes not just people, but societies and families and communities and the world. He pays particular attention to the way that Jesus continually goes back to the practices of prayer and solitude. Luke is especially concerned with how a desire for money and a desire for God can't go hand in hand. And this morning, we're going to talk about the one issue that Luke raises called theodicy, which is just a fancy way of saying, is God good? Is God faithful? You see, Luke primarily writes his gospel to a Greek or Gentile audience. In fact, one of the singular things, unique things about the book of Luke is that his gospel is actually the first book in a series. Uh, Acts is the second book. Luke and Acts go together. And Acts tells the story of the formation of the church after Jesus dies and is resurrected. And so Luke's task is not only to give us a picture of who Jesus was, but to provide some continuity between who Jesus was and what the church became after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, the community to which Luke writes no longer identifies primarily as uh, Jewish. They're kind of letting go of their Jewish identity as they open their door to Gentiles and as they let go of these tightly held Jewish customs. We read this as we read through the letters in the New Testament. And on the wider stage of history, a Jewish rebellion has been squashed and the Jewish temple has been destroyed. And so at first glance, it might seem like all of the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament have been forgotten, have been broken. Out of this perceived break in the plot, this question arises for the community. Can we trust a God who doesn't seem to have kept God's promises to the Jewish people? Luke explores this age-old, continuing existential question that we all ask sometimes, is God really good? Can God be trusted? In fact, Luke opens the gospel trying to address this very question. Luke 1, 1 1-4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught." I'm writing this story, Luke says, not just to add to other accounts of Jesus' life, but to show you that this story has integrity, that fulfillment is happening in this story. And he does this in a masterful way through the telling of the story of John the Baptist's mom and dad, John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zachariah, which is the unique story of Luke that we're exploring today. Listen to their story. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes. They were careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. 
They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. And Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And Zechariah said to the angel, uh, how can I be sure that this will happen? I am an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Okay, so uh, if you've been a part of Lakeview for the last little while, or if you've followed our series through the last few months, I'm hoping that you hear echoes of another story in this story. From way back in September, does anyone hear echoes of a story? They're old, they don't have children. Amen. Amen. Abraham and Sarah, that's right, Abraham and Sarah. So remember that genealogy we talked about way back in September, how the list of the fathers who had sons ended with Abraham because he had no child? No babies meant no future. But then God stepped in and gave Abraham a restart by giving him a son. You just hear these echoes in this story. A new son is being born. What restart might be happening? But there's also a part in Abraham's story when the messengers of God appear to Abraham to tell him that Sarah, who is 90 at the time, will have a child. And this is what they say. Your wife, Sarah, will bear a son and you shall name him Isaac. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son and you shall name him John. The words are almost exactly the same. And Zachariah's reaction echoes the reaction of Abraham to the messenger, who says to God, will a son be born to a man of 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? How can I be sure this will happen, Zachariah says. I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. So Luke intends for his readers to recognize this story of Abraham in the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Luke wants to show this new community of Jesus followers that it is God's faithfulness to the promise of Abraham that has animated and given rise to this new chapter of this story, the story, the story of Jesus and the story of the church. Luke is revealing in this masterful way what uh, the story that he is telling about Jesus in the church is actually a continuation of the covenant promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12. That promise to bless the whole world through this nation. 
The story of the church, the story of the community to whom he is writing is not divorced. There isn't a break in the story. There is uh, a continuation, a fulfillment of the promises that God made to the Jewish people and to the nation of Israel. Their story grows out of that story. And the message to us this morning is much the same. There is an essential link for us between the past and the present. It is the story of history. It is the story in which God is at work in the world, initiating new things, continuing to bring these miraculous babies in the war, into the world, while also keeping the promises that God has made in the past. We have our questions about the goodness of God. These are age-old questions, just like Luke's audience did. Is God faithful? Will God keep God's promises? Will God keep us and our world safe? Will God really give us what we need? Does God do what God says? And what Luke reveals is that what God gives us is not answers to these deep existential questions. He doesn't give them in point form or put them on Wikipedia so we can just like Google it and find the answer. Instead, God invites us into a story. And this is why no matter what we claim to believe or disbelieve, what rises to the surface in our most vulnerable moments is inevitably the story on which we build our lives. Christianity does not give us a concise explanation for vulnerability, loss, or pain, but it does give us a story, a real story in history. And with Luke's unique telling, he is flipping the picture. He is giving us a unique perspective on what God might be up to, on how God might be keeping God's promises, working with integrity, and continually proving that God is trustworthy. See, the gift of struggling with questions of God's goodness is that we have to look beyond textbook answers to God's self. We begin to actually deal with God when we start to ask these questions. We are forced to look beyond the meaning of our own individual lives, beyond our own needs and our own desires. And this opens us up to a whole new way of seeing the world. We see a mouse, maybe where we used to see a cat. Our viewpoint readjusts, we see a new horizon. We might not get tidy answers, everything might not get fixed, but what we do get is a new vision. So as we follow Luke's line of reasoning, we see that God's goodness is not wrapped up in answers or in detailed arguments, it's wrapped up in stories. Stories are the currency of God's goodness. So maybe for us, instead of looking for answers or collecting reasons, the way we reinterpret our lives is by collecting and hanging on to stories that remind us of what we know to be true, but are in danger of forgetting. And this happens not just in old stories, but in, in unfolding ones. Back to the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, and he was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the line of Aaron. 
and Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous, careful to obey all of the Lord's commands and regulations, but they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. So Zechariah is chosen by Lot. He would have gone to the temple twice a year. That would have been part of his role uh, to play a part in festival days, feast days, sacrifices, and other rituals. And one time in his life, he would have been chosen by Lot to enter the sanctuary. And this is his chance. And his prayers as he stepped into the role of priest through all of these years, as he went to Jerusalem twice a year and did the things that he was supposed to do, um, he would have prayed that God would remember the nation of Israel again, that God would restore their fortunes. We read here that Herod is the king of Judea, of Judea, and this locates this story in a time when the Jewish people were still under an occupying force. Their prayers for rescue had not yet been answered. And Zechariah, each time he prayed, would have carried the hope and longing of this nation into his role as priest, praying for God's fulfillment, praying that God would keep God's promises. But there's another level, because Zechariah and Elizabeth also don't have children. And in the ancient world, this would probably have meant that they were treated as suspect, because God was seen as the person who opened and closed wombs. And clearly God had closed Elizabeth's wombs, womb. And their neighbors and their community, they would have suspected that maybe this was a result of sin or something that they'd done wrong. And yet Luke in this passage is very careful to point out that this couple was righteous in God's eyes. They did all of the right things. In fact, they also had perfect credentials according to the law and priestly standings. Abijah and Aaron, they come from the right families. And yet their lives had not worked out as expected. And so when the angel announces that God has heard Zechariah's prayers, it's clear that God is answering their personal prayers because the angel follows it up and says, you're going to have this baby, you're going to have a son. But there's also another level of prayers being answered because God has also heard the prayers that the priest has prayed on behalf of the nation. With the birth of this baby, this passage says that John will bring many of the people back to the Lord their God. He will go before uh, Jesus in the spirit of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, of the disobedient back to wisdom. He will make ready a people prepared for Jesus. You see, as God steps in to meet the long-spoken prayers of this nation, God is also paying particular attention to Zechariah and Elizabeth. God's faithfulness to them, God's faithfulness to the nation, is also faithfulness to individuals. These two things don't stand in opposition to one another. It's like the faithfulness of God soaks through all of the layers of the story not leaving one part out. And I wonder sometimes if waiting for answers to our questions or answers to our prayers is a way that God is soaking through all of the layers of the story, is a way that God is tying up loose ends, not just ours, but the whole world's. 
What if, as we wait, God is wrapping up the answers to our own questions, the answers to our prayers in the larger story of God's plan to renew all things? What if waiting is a way that God takes the time that God's faithfulness needs to soak through, getting into all the nooks and crannies of our own stories, but also in the story of the world? The other side of this idea is that God saw Elizabeth and Zachariah, and God sees you too. In the midst of all that's happening in world history right now, in the midst of all of the events that we're going to write down in social studies books that our grandkids are going to read, God's faithfulness is for you. If God is at work to tie up all the loose ends, to renew all things, then that includes you. So if you have been waiting for an answer for a long time, remember the story of God's faithfulness. God has not forgotten you. If you have asked for something over and over and all you've heard is silence, remember the story of God's faithfulness. God has not forgotten you. If you are in the midst of a relationship that is a slog, if you continue to endure a situation that feels hopeless, God has not forgotten you. God will be faithful. His faithfulness will soak through. I don't know how, and I don't know when, but this is the story we tell, this is the story we believe, and this is the story we submit our lives to. Now, that doesn't mean that all of our stories end tied up with a bow on this side of death. None of us lives a complete life. And there are some situations we know won't get better and some prayers that won't get answered. There are some things we lose and we never get them back. But do you know what we do when we face those situations? We look to that larger story of God. We remember that God's answers are not just contained in the small plot lines of our own stories, but in this large plot line of God's plan to renew all things. We have a bigger story to lean into. God will make all things new. All of those unfinished storylines will yet be soaked through with God's faithfulness. If not in this lifetime, then in the next. Our story does not finish with our small endings. It does not finish with our ultimate ending. We are held in the promise that somehow, in God's love, death and endings will all be destroyed. And that's really good news. Big breath of fresh air. But you might be asking as you sit there, what about now? We don't live there yet. We live here. We live in the meantime. And how do we do it? How do we live uh, faithfully in the meantime? Well, um, I have four children, and I have done several solo trips with those four kids over the years. Um, my kids are super close together, so my oldest is 23, my youngest is 18. Um, but that means that on some of those solo holidays, I had four kids from age 5 to 10, 
6 to 11, 7 to 12, you get it, like just lots of kids. Um, and one of the hardest things about having four kids that close together is waiting, especially when you're the only parent on duty. When we had to sit in the car for a long drive or wait our turn in line, or the worst yet, wait for the food to come in a restaurant. If you're a parent, you've been there, right? You can picture it, can't you? You just, you started the day bright and shiny. Everyone's hair was combed and their face was clean. You were happy and energetic and you went about your day and the day has gotten the better of you. Everyone is hangry, that's angry and hungry, and tired. The shine has worn off, the kids are dirty and sweaty, and mom and dad are either checked out or wound up super, super tight. Everything is about to fall apart or blow up, and waiting is TNT for the situation. It is really hard to wait. Our anxiety rises, we get irritable, we doubt we're ever gonna get what we need. We start to think that the food will never come. Maybe our order has been forgotten. Our prayer has been forgotten. Waiting can make us demanding. It can make us doubt that things will be okay when we don't receive the answers we want in a timely fashion or in the way that we expected. And there are so many places that we are called to wait when we have to live in the meantime. Zachariah and Elizabeth also lived in the meantime. They actually lived most of their life in the meantime, between the promise and the fulfillment, asking for and waiting for a child, asking God to fulfill God's promise to the nation, waiting for God to do it. They spent most of their life waiting for the food to arrive. And still, they kept orienting themselves. They kept using their daily lives to, to focus on the promise of God's restoration. They practiced faithfulness in the meantime. Imagine how many days and years that they had continued to be faithful. If Elizabeth was beyond childbearing years, I'm thinking maybe she was in her 60s, maybe her 70s, maybe she was 90, like Sarah. She had likely given up hope of having a child like 20 years ago, maybe more. And yet she hadn't stopped hoping in God. Zechariah kept doing the things that he was called to do, showing up twice a year at the temple, continually, or continuing to fulfill his duties faithfully, to faithfully pray. They found ways to wait, to live in the meantime. I found ways to wait with my kids too. This was my best trick. I would grab a whole bunch of things out of my purse and I would put them on the table. Keys, here is pro tip for all of you parents out there with little kids. Keys, chapstick, nail file, pen, Kleenex package. I would let the kids have a really good look at all of the items on the table. Then I would take a napkin and I would cover the items and I would take one out. Then I would take the napkin off and they would have to guess which of the items was gone. They loved that game. We would play it over and over until the food came. For a while when they got older and they were bored of that, I kept a deck of Uno cards in my purse. Later, when the kids got phones, we would have a list of would you rathers or play trivia games. Actually, we still play trivia games when we wait for our food. 
Over time, these tricks I had for waiting actually became some of the best parts of our family life together. We would look forward to the wait because this became a place where something new had come. New relational connections started to happen between us. The waiting ended up holding the unexpected. It held a gift. And it was the same thing with Elizabeth and Zachariah. In the waiting, in the everyday ordinary, in the very expected, the unexpected happens. Zechariah gets chosen to enter the sanctuary of the temple, his one chance. It's there that he sees the angel. It is there that he is told he will be a father long beyond the time that biology would allow. It's here that he is let in on the announcement that God is about to answer the prayers of the people. In the middle of everyday faithfulness, a new thing happens. And when the angel announces that this new baby John is about to arrive, he says that John will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will make a way. He will clear a path. John will clear a way for the people to respond to Jesus when he comes on the scene. And I wonder if our waiting does the same thing John did for Jesus, that it prepares us for the coming of the Lord. So what are you waiting for? And how's it going? Is it getting hard? Are you hangry? Does it seem too long? Does it feel like in your wait you're losing the plot, that you're forgetting God's faithfulness, it's okay. We all feel that way sometimes. But like Uno cards in a mom's purse, there are things that we can do that help to open us up to wait in the ordinary days for the unexpected. And they're called spiritual practices, and we talk to you about them all the time. And they help us wait. Practices like prayer, like loving-kindness prayer. These things help us stay faithful. And so just maybe this week, take some time to examine how your ordinary daily rhythms help to orient you to hope, help remind you of the story of God's faithfulness. How are these practices helping clear space so that you can receive the unexpected when it comes your way. But the final and ultimate question that this story asks us this morning is, how is God preparing you in the waiting for the coming of the Lord? And so maybe your waiting is clearing space for something bigger. Maybe it is reorienting your perspective on those existential questions, that it is reorienting your story to see that God is faithfully still keeping God's promise to Abraham through the church in Luke's time and through us, Lakeview Church. We are a continuation of the story of God. Or maybe the waiting is allowing God's faithfulness to gather up or soak through all of the nooks and crannies of all of the plot lines in the life of the world. And maybe the waiting is preparing us not just for answers, not just to receive what we asked for, for the food to get to the table, but for the arrival of Jesus himself.
God is with us in our waiting. And one of the practices that we do that help us wait in the meantime is the practice of taking communion together. So you can grab your pods. This meal reminds us of the story of which we are a part. It, it reminds us that Jesus opens us up to this story, includes us in this story. But this meal also reorients us to a, um, this time of waiting so that we can see it as a time of preparation. It reminds us there is a time when we will all gather and feast and there will be no more endings and no more questions of how long. And so as you eat this morning, may you be reminded that God has thought about the wait, that God knows it's hard, but like a pack of Uno cards in a mom's purse, he has given us this practice to sustain us. So I'm gonna say the words of consecration and instruct you, and we're gonna eat this meal together. You can peel back that first layer. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body broken for you. You can eat. Go ahead and peel back that next layer. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ's blood shed for you. Go ahead and drink. For whenever you eat this bread, Whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's sing together. <laughs> 